This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To episode 101 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week we discuss Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark Books and Andre Overdahl's 2019 film of the same name. So be honest with me. You're okay. a fully grown adult at this point. I am. How scary do you find these stories? Does it still terrify you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's Fear's a funny thing, especially when it comes to adults reading scary stuff right because on one hand people often will say like oh this thing scared me but then there's often also this other contingent of people who refuse to ever admit anything scares them right it's this like macho thing of like that's not scary that's not scary that's not scary you'll, you'll see that in the comments this movie wasn't scary this book isn't scary i don't know the fuck you're talking about and part of that is the stephen king phenomenon i think where he says like um you know f- the the fear bone is different like the funny bone, it's different in everybody, I guess, right? And it affects people differently, and different things scare people different ways. We talked about that in Pet Cemetery, I think. And I think that's probably true here still. Um, definitely, so so I think there's like 100 stories, or approximately over three books here, that we, we both read all of them. And um, there's a wide variety of what kind of stories they are. You have uh, humorous stories, you have jump scare stories, and then you have approximately a third of them that are actually intended to be some sort of like creepy story, whether it's a ghost story or, or about a monster or about a person doing a monstrous thing. Um, and that's obviously the subsection that's most likely to be frightening. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like in the moment I was terrified, but I will admit that I had a nightmare the day before I went and saw the film. So it was from the, from reading the books. And in that nightmare, there was Harold and the big-faced, like, black-haired, beady-eyed woman. I forget what story, the name of the story that that one's from, from the third book. Um, They both appeared in it. Now, maybe that's more Stephen Gamble's illustrations that are giving me giving me nightmares. I don't know. There certainly wasn't really a lot to do with the stories themselves. It was it was more the images. Um, But yeah, so, you know, 33-year-old man having a nightmare about about those books. So I, I think that's a testament to it. Yeah. I mean, where to even begin with this? So it's uh, like like you were saying, there's a different it's just like there's atmospheric, scary um, kind of like haunting things that that really like burden you and, and like you carry with you and you think about later yeah. versus jump scares versus, you know, every type of like gruesome gore or something like that. And right. so like you said, it's Gross different out, for everyone. Horror, yeah. And, but this this has like this really and, and like come to find out in this documentary that we watched as well we'll talk about more yeah but come to find out a lot of this is built in uh like research from folklore from right. other you know other countries and here and there and there is sort of this like nursery rhyme quality to it while also being like really disturbing in, in some ways and then other times like really funny or surprising yeah and i think that this sticks with me in a way that is atmospheric it's not necessarily about like oh my god that was such a scary story but it's just like the details that you think about like that's wow that's such a great 
terrifying detail and you think about it from the perspective of a child which is which is the other thing yeah uh, it, it really can stick with you and i think that that like you said is a testament to to these kind of scary stories for children that that you know adults can appreciate as well so that leads me to my next question what is your experience with these books did you read them when you were a kid are you coming to this stuff new so i i remember seeing the covers and i i was sure that i had read some of them and uh, as I was going through them, I, nothing was ringing bells. And then and then every once in a while, there'd be a story. And I'd be like, I know this story. This has something that I've read before. So like, for example, like the hearse song. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there, here. I wrote a few down. Hang on one second. Um, High beams is just like the the one where. Well, and that's kind of an seat. urban legend type story, too. Like that and Hook right. both feel like urban legend stories you might have heard anyway, regardless of this book. Yeah, but but the one that, that I know for sure is uh, Me Tai Doty Walker. Really? That was like, yeah, I knew like that, like when I was reading that, I was like, this is this is like the rhyming and everything about it. I was like, I've totally read this before in some way. So uh-huh. I didn't think going in, I didn't think that uh, like I, I was like, yeah, I'm familiar with a lot of the imagery and I've seen the books before and I thought that I'd read some of them. But as I started to read them, I, I was like, maybe I didn't. Mm-hmm. And then a couple stories really stood out to me. So I think I'm pretty sure that I've read some of them, but not like this, the way that we went through it. Um, right. I wasn't like really steeped in it or anything. Okay. So uh, I'm a bit of the opposite with that. I, I was I was an original huge super fan of these books. Um, so I was born in 85, and the first book came out in 81, the second book in 84, and then the third and final book came out in 91. Um, for whatever reason, I never owned the third book. Um, I bought it this time when we were reading because I had my two old copies like from a childhood of of the first two still to go through. And uh, but the third one I didn't have. So I guess I guess I just missed that one. Um, I some of the stories in there were familiar. So maybe a friend of mine had them or something. I'm not really sure. Um, but regardless, I grew up on these books and um, I consider them pretty foundational for me. And I, w- I was really trying to figure out why that is. And I think reading it this time, I had a strong appreciation for what Alvin Schwartz was able to do with these stories. So like you mentioned before, like he researched a lot of this stuff and found a lot of it, whether it was in the libraries or talking to people around the country or what have you. And then he boiled it down. You know, I I kept thinking of like boiling it down to just the bones, (laughs) like a skeleton, you know, in some twisted way, like these stories often reference. Um, to where it was as simple as simple gets for the most part, right? Like the stories are like a man met a woman. That woman seemed like she was alive. He gave her a thing. Later he finds out she's dead, yet she still has the thing when he sees her later. And that's the story that's in this book in like 10 different forms. You know what I mean? Like, or, or, or some variation of like a subtle twist or like a slight twist where it's like, and that person was dead or you were dead or, you know, the death is coming for you or something. It's all very death-related, obviously. And I think for a kid reading about death, and, and this is talked about in the documentary and stuff, um, I think that is an important moment. It's like when you're faced with mortality and you're faced with the idea that you can die and like just the way that our society has handled that over time and like whether that's folklore about it or, or sort of the hearse song, which has sort of a uh, moral to it. Of like, don't laugh at the hearse because you're you could be the next to die, right? Um, so I think it strikes to children in that way. You have this really dramatic inner Im- imagery that really sticks with you. Um, but then I'm I'm I am trying to get to a point here. I'm just rambling a little bit. 
But the point I'm trying to get to is, for me, this book is also an instructional book. And it was literally a this is how you tell scary stories book. And here are some you can tell. And so when I would read these short, short stories, like almost microfiction, um, it was so accessible and so simple that even like eight-year-old me would read it and go, I can do that. I can tell a story like this. And sure enough, I started doing that. And I know I know some of my siblings, definitely some of my cousins and friends. I would tell them stories. And I would just make them up. I would improvise them on the spot. I wouldn't sit down knowing what I was going to really talk about. I would just say, I'm going to improvise a scary story. And I would improvise some shit. I would throw in a twist ending where someone ended up being dead or something. And that was the story, right? Or there was a ghost. And those early storytelling moments for me, I think really started me down the path of like wanting to tell stories and and write and talk about stories like on a podcast <laughs> you know so pretty foundational in that sense it sounds a lot like your uh your D skills as well right like it's sort yeah. of that like improvisational and um like on the fly creating some sort of interesting twist or, or element and that, that's really cool man yeah and this probably predates me playing D too because i remember playing D for the first time around the time i was 12 and I remember, definitely remember telling these stories earlier than that. Um, there was probably some overlap, but I think I really started when I was like probably like eight or nine or ten, somewhere in that range. So you mentioned how uh, death plays a huge part in these books, and, and they are specifically geared towards children. Yeah. And we've kind of talked about this kind of stuff before with, with children in peril and like not, not treating children like they they can't know anything and like sheltering them i think we've kind of touched on those kinds of subjects before yeah um and you know it's just like our own personal uh viewpoint on this kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. i felt like especially watching the documentary i felt like there was something and i don't know if it's necessarily laugh at death or if it's or if it's kind of being familiar with death or because it feels like a lot of these stories like you said like some of them are morality tales it feels like a lot of them are throughout like every single one seems like it has some sort of lesson to it or some sort of cautionary tale or something like that and i i think that that's what why it makes for a good kids book although you know and the imagery is really shocking and really uh haunting and and grotesque in ways and and just like really scary stuff that's i think that that the combination of the writing and the illustration and is is what's like really cemented this book for a lot of people because yeah. you know in the documentary we watched uh it's i think it's just called scary stories right yeah i believe so it uh you can see the influence it has on people who were and like while, while while we were reading this and while we were watching the doc i was like i can totally see why like this was foundational for luke like i was thinking mm-hmm. about that i was like this oh, yeah. this totally <laughs> seems like his sort of like i could see how the kid who would one day like get super into metal like all that kind of stuff like could, <laughs> yeah. could see all this stuff is like foundational yeah for sure um, and yeah, I mean, that documentary, I think, did a good job of showing that there are a lot of people around my age who who think of these books fondly. And, you know, there's a lot of people who had sleeve tattoos or full back tattoos of this art and, you know, were sharing it with their children. And and then they, I, I also liked how they showed the other side. And that was sort of the moral panic and this, you know, Satan, satanic outrage of the 80s. Right. Where everyone was like, oh, my God, D&D is going to poison the minds of our children and these books. Um, which the the documentary does a good job of showing that they were widely banned and they were sort of considered like contraband. And mm-hmm. and I remember that being kind of a thing too. Like it felt like a book you almost shouldn't have. And I think a lot of that you... comes back to the folklore element, right? Because it's like it lends it a weight. 
And so even if each individual story isn't that terrifying sometimes, the idea that you're holding something of like folklore that's been passed down to the generations like gives it a truth. You well, know? Feel, yeah, it feels like this ancient story, like an ancient magic or an yeah. old something that's always been there kind of thing. Uh, but I wanted to ask you how much of how, did you experience any of that in school with the ban? Like, were you, were you trying to like sneak the books into school? And like, did you have any banning going on? Because uh, it reminded me of something that I that I had growing up. OK, well, I know I'm pretty certain they did not have it in the school library. So it was probably on a list and not there. I had the books at home. Um, I probably did bring them in my bags and stuff sometimes. I don't have any like clear memories of like a teacher seeing them and getting upset or anything. No. Okay. Because I, I remember when I was growing up, the Harry Potter books. And, and it, the reason I want to bring this up is because the especially in the documentary as well, um, people make the argument that like, oh, it's grotesque and it's gruesome, gruesome. but then the uh, there will be people of a religious background that are saying like, it's it's not good, it's it's immoral to have it there. And the people who are for the books would say, is it is it because of it's against your religion, because you feel that it's like immoral based on your religion? Or is it immoral just based on it being grotesque for everyone? Kind of just like free, seeing whether it was like, if the book should be in libraries and if it was like freedom of of expression or freedom of speech, I guess. The the thing that it made me think of is when when I was growing up, Harry Potter was, was by religious groups, people, and I don't want to specifically say religious groups, but I remember in my experience, there were people who were religious. It was a lot of that, yeah. That, that wouldn't let their kids read Harry Potter based on like witchcraft and, and like um, three-headed dogs and things like that, that, mm-hmm. that people saw as like satanic or whatever. Like it went from, you know, there were things like scary stories and D&D and Harry Potter. I feel like there's always somebody who latches onto that stuff and, and doesn't necessarily read it, but sees it as a potential, um, I don't know, scarring device for their children. You know what I mean? Like it, it just seems yeah. like they, they worry about it without the context. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. I think this is this is one of those cases where, uh, some people are worried about the effect it's going to have on society. And like, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, that's something that uh, they, they had, like the person who spearheaded the effort against these books was in the documentary and she's, you know, 25 years later, she still believes that the, they shouldn't be, you know, available for children who are in elementary school, which to me is kind of a funny thing because I'm sitting here thinking about how these are some of my favorite books from childhood. Like I literally don't remember hardly any of the other things I was reading at the time. Yet I can look back on these books with clear memories. And I think there was also a social element of it for me, the storytelling element like we've talked about. Um, I remember this is the kind of book you would get under the covers with, light up some flashlights, you know, with all the lights out in the room and try and creep your friends out on it, you know, if if they were staying over for the night. It was just, it was fun. And, And it was fun, I think, at that age to engage with something that maybe was a little bit pushing the boundaries of what, you you know, most of the time you're getting in your entertainment. Um, And I grew up in a household where my father would often talk about the end of the world. And that was something that was, I was aware of um, from a young age, like the world's going to end any day now was something I would think about a lot um, because I'd hear that from him a lot. And if if dad, if you're listening, hi, love you. Um, (laughs) But um, I mean, it would, it would worry me. And I'd wait, I'd stay up at night having nightmares and uh, about the world ending. And uh, I think these books were kind of nice because it was like I needed something that would like justify the idea that I would be afraid of death and and talk about it in a way, frankly, and um, 
I don't know. And it's, it's also that time of your life where you still believe in ghosts and, you know, maybe you still do as an adult, but like I don't anymore, but I did then. And so I wanted to believe in all this stuff. So in that sense, it was yeah. scarier too, because it felt so real and immediate. Two things I want to say. The, just going back to the banning of the book thing, it's, it's interesting how when these things start to get banned and talked about on the news, that's when people really start to seek it out. Also, it kind of has the adverse effect. People are like, we want to bury these books and then they turn into even bigger phenomenons than they were. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a boost of popularity whenever you do that. Yeah. And then the you were talking about the the way that it the, engaging with this is like was like slightly beyond your years, maybe or, or just the way that it was allowing you to uh, think about death at a, at a young age. I think that it's also interesting to think about the way that that Schwartz stacked these stories in a row. Because you would have these really ominous ones that would make you question your mortal your mortality and like the decision making that you do and like what's gonna happen to you when you die. And then he'd have a, this, the next story would be like somebody died and like it'd be lighthearted and it wasn't it didn't seem like it was the, this thing that that was to be feared always. Yeah. Um, so I thought that that was like a fun way to keep it serious and light at the same time. Yeah, there is a lot of that. Like you look, it's like a, you're getting all these different views. That's because folklore is like that, right? Like there's different, it's there's different ways that people deal with this stuff. So yeah, one is, some stories are intended to frighten you. Some stories are intended to give you like a, a thrill and then a laugh. And that's the ones where it says like, you know, grab a friend and yell ah, right? And it's mm-hmm. literally telling you in the book to like startle your friend. And then of course, you know what follows that is everybody laughs theoretically. The then there's like the the goofy ones where it's just about like a guy with an accent, right, wanting to wipe your windows, mm-hmm. and and so like I remember thinking that was funny as a kid, and like uh, bloody fingers, like the the guy who like yells at the ghosts, like cool it man, P- uh, puts some get a band aid or whatever, right? I think is the punchline of that one, and I loved that story growing. Up. I remember telling that all the time to people, and because it was stupid, I don't know, and it did it went somewhere you weren't expecting the story to go because it seems like it's a story about this is gonna be really scary. So it was just, it was having fun with it. And I think there was some power to that that I, that I really appreciate. So we did see this movie, which I definitely want to get to eventually. Um, and we're going to save spoiler talks for later. But uh, do you have, what, what more do we want to say about the books before we get to movie talk? I did really enjoy myself reading these stories. Um, it was a lot of stories to read, but I, they would just blow by. They were so much fun to read. And, and each one would, would be investing in a different, I would get invested in a different way. That does remind me. So you, I think you mentioned something about listening to audio for this book. What? Yes. Uh, so, so did you listen to all of them on audio or, and how was that? So no, I listened to one of the three books on audio. Okay. And um, it was, it was interesting because although you don't have the visual element immediately in front of you, mm-hmm. the narrator, his name is George S. Irving for this, for this audio book was really, really good. Like, like, like extremely, extremely engaging. And okay. he, he would he would get into like the different like ghost noises and like the thumps and the way that he would sing and rhyme which is something else we should talk about is the way that like although we we've talked about it being folklore a lot of the alliteration in these stories and like repetition um it it makes for it 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 just like it gets stuck in your head kind of yeah it it, they become like like me tai doty walker i just kept saying it i was just like in my head (laughs) it's just like such a and i don't know why i don't really i don't know that i fully understand a lot of these these things too like sure i i get that it's from a some folklore probably but like why is me tai doty walker getting stuck in my head 
I don't know. It's just, it always feels like there's more, there's more to the story too, which is kind of a cool thing about this, where it's like, this is a yeah. piece of a story that's been almost sanitized for this book. And if you were to go find, hear the real story, it might be way darker. Some of the time, the shorter stories were, were the ones that, that stuck with me more just because it, it's so short and you have such a small snapshot of the story going on. Mm -hmm. And your your imagination runs more wild. The ones that are like you know ten pages or whatever, those ones, uh, you you like to get invested and you like you see where it's going all along. But the ones that are like just one page, sometimes you just sit there and think and you look at the image a little more and you're like, damn, this one's like, yeah. I, I don't know. For some reason, sometimes the shorter ones just seem to to uh, leave me thinking a little bit longer. One of my absolute favorites from all three books is the um, it's called the Bed by the Window. And uh, do you remember this story? It's about the three old men in the nursing home. That was another one that I I felt like I, when I read that one, I was like, I've totally heard the story before. I've totally yeah. read this before. I love that story. And I think I think it's genuinely a great story. And I think as a kid, like the idea that it was layered in a way. Um, and essentially, uh, to retell it briefly, it's, it's about three men in a, in a nursing home. And I guess they're all so decrepit they can't get up and, like, do anything. They're basically bedridden. And the um, the one, the, the, basically the one furthest to the side is, like, has a bed in front of a window. And when he dies, then the two move over one bed. And the new the guy who newly has the window spot starts telling the other guy all of the stuff that he's seeing through the window. And he's, like, tells the story of all this cool stuff. He sees, a, like, a pizzeria and you can see the sun shining and all this stuff. Right. And it starts to make the other guy super, super jealous. And eventually this other guy finds a way to like knock the heart medicine off so that the guy can't have his heart medicine when he has a heart attack. And he he kills him so that he can get the bed by the window. Then he gets the bed by the window and he looks out and he just sees a blank brick wall. So that's the turn of the story. And I love it on multiple levels. Right. It's the idea that the other guy was lying just to just to like build it up and like uh, talk about how great it is even though he would have been exposed to the same disappointment. You know what I mean? When he, so that was how mm -hmm. he chose to react. And then of course the idea that like jealousy could lead you to murder. And then there's, there's definitely like a morality tale there. And then the psychology behind it too, like being trapped and just desperately wanting to see something in anything. Um, the idea of being like trapped on your bed and old and, and this is, and you have no one left. Like that's dark in and of itself. There's a lot going on, and this is just like this is like a five, like a 250 word story, probably. Like it's so short, and just and just delivers. There's also something there about the man who the second person to get to the window. Yeah, he is kind of because uh, you don't know who's gonna die first. You know, like right. he could have been. He's kind of doing him a mercy, telling him all of these things and giving something him something to look forward to, or like a goal. Yeah, or like something. he was almost trying to and help him like, out. Yeah, he was helping. It was like he was being a, a good person. Um, and then just that idea that once he's killed him, he's thinking like, oh, wow, he was he was looking out for me and and yeah. I, I killed him. Yeah, it's dark. Man. The and th that's when this book's at its best, when it has a story like that, I think. And there are a few like that. Um, do you have any other standout stories that that other than the Mitai Doti Water Walker story, which has a talking dog in it, which is also kind of weird, which they yeah. kind of allude to in the movie. We'll, we'll get to later when we talk about. Yeah. Um, that the uh, Mitai Doti Walker is one of the ones that I heard on audiobook, mm -hmm. and the guy absolutely crushes it. He's, he's he gets louder, and it's it's as I'm like it's it's scary. It was scary to listen to. I was listening to it at night. Yeah, and I was like, this is like I listened to it actually. I listened yeah. to the whole thing and then took it back to listen to it again. 
That reminds me of a lot of these stories are are like that. Like something is said and then it gets louder and then it gets louder and then it gets louder and then there's usually a jump scare or something or a joke, mm-hmm. right? Usually it leads to something. Um, there was this, there's a story about uh, a ghost. I think it's in, in volume three. There's like a ghost in the room. And I think it's in this funny story section, right? And it's about this girl who sees this like spirit in her room and she tells her parents and stuff and they come, they can't see it. And then every night it like gets closer and it's like on the dresser and then it's like on the roof and then it's on the edge of the bed with her. And it's got a terrifying piece of art next to it. And the story itself literally is one of the scariest like buildups. And then at the end, she like blows a raspberry, like the ghost blows a raspberry at her. But it didn't really matter because the story, the buildup of the story is so terrifying and and with yeah. that art, like you would be so fucking scared if you saw that. I don't know. It just um, that reminds me as a, as a scare, scary piece, even though it was one of the funny ones. That uh, I think that was in the the last book. Like that was one of the last stories in the last book. And I remember, yeah, yeah thinking that it was pretty funny. Um, so one that really stands out to me, I I I can't really remember exactly what the name is. I think it's Sounds, okay. but it's like these guys are in this lighthouse and they keep hearing stuff. Do you remember this one? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, so I just looked it up to make sure. It, it is called Sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're all staying at this lighthouse, and they hear, like, a woman screaming, crying out in pain. They're all, like, huddling together, and they're they're starting to get really scared, and they're like, what, what's going on? Like, the rain is, like, pounding on the on the lighthouse. Like, basically, they're trapped in this place. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't they, like, run out into the night at one point, afraid or something? I think so. Yeah, like it gets to a point where they keep hearing stuff, they keep hearing stuff, and and it just becomes so terrifying that they have to run off into the night. And then I think a visage appears or something, right? Yeah, is the kind of the end of that. That one, that was like one of the ones I wrote down to as like one of my favorites. Like as soon as as I finished it, I just wrote down um, the lighthouse one. Yeah, that one in addition to the wreck, which was the one where um, you kind of referenced earlier. Yeah, the she he like gives her something, and that's like one of the best versions of that story. But I think it kind of appears several times throughout the books. Yeah, yeah, that one. The um, I think it's like tinsel in her hair or something, and then it's like still there at the end. Yeah, he had given it to her, and like he didn't he like avoid a wreck. She had been she she mentioned she wrecked her car and then like walked or something, and then like Mm -hmm. they went to the dance, and then he was taking her home. And he ended up dropping her off and then he saw like a fire and he went and saw this like car on fire and like her body was in there and yeah. yet it had the tinsel in the hair, but it was clearly from like earlier. I don't know. So it's this yeah. like, oh, like time bendy ghost thing. So I, the ones that I wrote down, I have also the her song was just yeah. I mean, it's 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 got to be the most famous from this this whole collection. Yeah, um, for sure. Good one. It's it's yeah, good. <laughs> it's so good. And then and then maybe second second most famous would be Harold which is another one I wrote down yeah. and they, they cover that in the, in the movie. Yep. Uh, did you, did you have an attachment to this story before? Like back when you were a kid, do you remember reading Harold? Did it Harold. stand out to so you? So Harold's in book three, which is the one that I had the least familiarity with. Most of the ones that I like really fondly remember were in the first two books. Um, okay. So, so yeah, that one wasn't as, as strongly for me, but it was a good story when I read it, but I, it wasn't one yeah. that I was like, I remembered it clearly when I sat down to read it. The other one, the other ones I have written here are, I had high beams that I mentioned earlier um, the Viper I wrote just because it's funny and yeah. I, I think it's re- I think it's really well set up because I was reading it not remembering it at all if I have ever read it and um, I was like ooh the Viper like he's he's on his way what is what's going on here because because you know what's funny is it, it's it takes place after I think the babysitter which the babysitter is the one where like somebody's calling from inside the house yeah. which is like a classic like classic horror thing so it you know the, somebody's calling from inside the house and then eventually you get to the Viper and it's somebody saying like I'm coming for you and you're like is this kind of the same thing going on and then 
he's like yeah. i'm coming i'm the viper i'm coming to you and then to wipe uh, the windows like, wipe <laughs> the windows yeah i mean and, and that does remind me that there are a few of these that like seem a little problematic these days i know there's a couple in there where the lesson of the story seems to be like if you're a fat person then you're you're comical um i know there's one where like a fat person dies and comes back as a hog and that's like that's yeah. like the joke of the story and yeah. and so there's there's definitely some stuff in here that hasn't aged very well but like honestly if you're if you're going to be looking through old folklore like there's going to be a lot of that right yeah um so there's also this the the body horror right like people yeah. turning into creatures and and like yeah losing yeah stuff like that like things bursting open body parts being taking like falling off or whatever, oh yeah like the, the cannibalism there's like tons of cannibalism in, in, in these stories yeah. um there's yeah. one is i think it's called like the sausage or something or something about sausage and there's right. like that the, one's the, 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 the picture is literally like an arm eating itself with a fork and it's about like a, it's basically about like a butcher who would like grind up people and sell them a sausage that tasted amazing and mm-hmm. i remember reading that as a kid and it just being like so disgusting and, and terrifying for sure uh and then eventually like he, the, one of the he's killing kids too is the scary oh thing. yeah he's like and like puppies and, and kittens which there's a lot of yeah. like dogs and cats that die in these stories too for sure yeah Oh, that's the other one too. The 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 black dog, right? Yeah. Like the guy kills he kills the dog he kills the guy and then the dog and then the dog haunts him forever. That was that one kind of stood out to me as well. Yeah, man. But, I mean, it's it's a lot of good stuff. Um, a lot of frightening stuff. I wanted to ask you your favorites though, real quick. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of been talking about a lot of them. Um, one of the ones I'm going to mention is the one that honestly, like to me, like because I do listen to some true crime and podcasts and so i know a lot of this stuff and like this one definitely seems like a warning about like ted bundy and people like this but there's a story mm-hmm. about a woman who's in college and she comes back to her dorm room and like her friend um she's like talking to her friend and not getting any response or something and then she like wakes up the next day and her friend's head's been cut off and like that kind of shit some of that shit's really happened because like literally like ted bundy like went to sorority houses and murdered a bunch of women and like this sort of stuff, it feels kind of like an allegory for that. But one of the reasons I want to mention that story is it has some of the craziest Stephen Gamble art attached to it that f- blows my mind. And it just, so in the documentary, it talks about how Stephen Gamble is this really mysterious figure, even to Alvin Schwartz, who worked with him on these books, and how he doesn't give interviews. And no one like knows hardly anything about this guy, and he would just take the art or take the stories and then he would be inspired to draw this art in some way. And the the art he pairs with this one is a man in a rocking chair with like a line that is wrapped around a a head that is like towing him through space. And then there's like a cosmic monster coming out of the fucking clouds. It's crazy. And like, it has nothing like the story is just about a woman in a, in a dorm room who's missing her head. But then this art is about the head and like what it's gone on to be, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I actually pulled it up. I'm looking at it right now. The story's called Oh Susanna. Oh Susanna. Yeah, that's right. Man, and like so that is like the the art in this book is every bit as powerful, if not more so, than the stories themselves. So that guy's yeah. a genius, and and it's in, it's really fascinating to me that he's this mysterious figure that like not a lot of people know about him or like know much yeah. about him. And the the art style is absolutely amazing, and it's so like, it, I love the way that it's 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 um like a lot of a lot of the image isn't fully completed. It like fades out into like darks and whites and stuff. Well, it like looks that. like uh it's, like ink blots almost, right? Yeah, it's all yep. black and white. 
and it's all runny. It all looks like it's got these like tendrils and 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 wisps coming off of everything and drippy drips and everything. Yeah, yeah. It's it's in, it's incredible. I think it's about time we got to get to this movie um, so we can talk about it. Before we do, I wanted to mention. So you probably saw and maybe you're curious um, when you pulled up this episode. It's named something different than what we've done in the past. In the past, we've always had um, episode dash and then the episode number. Um, we've decided we're gonna we're gonna move away from that, and it's for a couple of reasons. Um, we're going to start having read episodes, watch episodes, and then, of course, there's going to be one like this, where it's read and watch. We think that's going to be a clear identifier to the listener of, like, what we've done. So we've read this book, we've watched this movie, and so now that's what we're talking about. And then it'll also be uh, maybe a little more inviting to somebody who doesn't want to have to feel like they're coming in late to a party because it's episode 120 or whatever. Like, yeah. they can just click on it and be welcomed. We'll still be keeping the episode titles, like, or, or sorry, we'll still be keeping the episode numbers um, yep. correlated with the episodes like we did here. We, we started the episode by saying it's episode 101. You know, we don't want to lose how many episodes we've done. And, and like, yeah. we want people to be able to identify which episodes which. And I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a. I, I think this is gonna be a cool way to, and and we, I, you probably noticed as well, we played with the intro. So like, yeah, um, switching up the intro and kind of like just jumping into it rather than having it be like intro to to music into the episode. I think it's I think it's really cool to just get the atmosphere from the music and then roll straight into all of it yeah. instead of having any er- interruptions. Yeah, and that's the idea behind it. Um, feel free to let us know what you think of it. Maybe give it a few times before you leap to because it's gonna be different at first, but give it a few chances, see how it goes. Um, and then, you know, we're open to, to, to tweaking things going forward, but I think that's what we're going to try for now. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we just, we're, we're going to keep track of the episode numbers are internally, we're going to put it in the show notes. It's going to be in the intro itself. It just won't be in the title anymore. So that's all, it'll, that's all it is. It'll also make iTunes happy. Apparently they don't want you to have episode numbers in your titles. That's like a big deal. Don't really know why, but, uh, we're, we're, we're now trying to be more compliant with them. We'll see if that helps. <laughs> um, but okay, man. I uh, so let's before we get to the actual movie. Let's. Is there anything else about the documentary that you want to mention before we move past it? We talked about the illustrator. We talked about the author and some of the you know the banning that went on. Yeah. I thought it was really cool to see. Although I wasn't necessarily one of the people who was so affected by this material, I thought it, I always find it really cool when people are that passionate about it. They're you know yeah. like it's carried forward. They're doing it. As you know, we saw the photographer who like, you know, is stuck doing wedding photos and stuff like that. And she was like, Mm -hmm. I want to do something more creative. So she started uh, taking basically trying to recreate some of the illustrations with with actual people, which I thought was just super cool. Um, And I felt like the documentary really emphasized what made these stories important and what kind of the legacy is going forward with them. Oh, that reminds me. Um, I as of twenty seventeen, the the books had sold over seven million copies worldwide, a number that is sure to balloon with this with this film coming out. I imagine, right? Um, yeah, it, I'm sure. And it probably already has. I really liked the stuff about Alvin Schwartz's son. He was one of the main figures in the documentary, and his relationship with his father was clearly very troubled, right? And and he um he had regrets about how he um left things with his father who ended up dying of cancer and i really uh, it was really affecting to me to see him sort of defending his father's legacy to this woman who was the spearhead of the like ban the book movement um to see him standing up for his father's legacy and, and defending it even though he had had such a contentious relationship with him and and even admittedly was didn't get the books like he said he never really got them and thought they were mm. creepy and weird and and even at one point told him that he should be doing something that mattered more than this 
which really upset him. Yeah, and that that made me th- both both of these things make me think about um, you know his relationship with his father and and how like nobody's here forever and yeah. just like letting people know what they mean to you and not trying you know if there is a fight kind of squashing that kind of stuff uh, just stuff to think about I, I think that, that it's really powerful and then the other thing is the way that he he was so passionate about this stuff and and the the aspect that I didn't know going in was the the amount of research that he did with the folklore which I find to be. A, a very noble pursuit and passion i think that like like it was brought up in the documentary the way that he's like he's collected these stories and put them all into uh she mentioned like you know children who are reading books for the first time will read these things and then see the sources and the, the places that he found these and they can go check out other books and read more on the subject and not only just making children read but also like kind of um having a permanent place for these for these folk stories to to yeah. live on I think is really, really a really powerful pursuit. It's almost like a historian thing to do, right? Like it's it's literally connecting the past with the present in a cool way, and and extending these stories out so that they don't get forgotten, even though they were probably passed along orally for many many years. Definitely, and I think that that's the 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 thing that I take away is just that like. Um, you know, everybody's art is different. Everybody is going to be passionate about different things. So just just hearing him say that, like he said that to his dad, made me think, like, you know, if somebody has art that you don't necessarily connect with, just in there, but it makes them happy and it's a pursuit that that you can see that they're actually working hard towards. I think that it's just it's just um, a matter of perspective and kind of just let people, you know, if it's not for you, maybe find something that is. Yeah. Um, I will. Uh, one more thing about those stories that that occurs to me is that reading them was also inspiring to me even now, in that um, it showed me like some of the basic building blocks of story in a way, because that's all that's really left in these, and it shows you like this is a story, this is a story, and this is why this one works for you, and and it's like easy to parse. And so, um, in a way, it was kind of inspiring to me, especially in the as it relates to short fiction. Like, it makes me want to try and write stories that are kind of like some of these that, that are that are in these books. Mm-hmm. And it's cool in that way too, you know. So, and, and that and that's more like connecting to the to the to the lineage of folk, uh, folklore going throughout time, and and how it's not a new thing to try and tell stories. It's actually one of the oldest things. I agree with you. I like the 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 simplified version of these stories. May, I felt the same way with game and stuff with with like Coraline um, writing children's fiction to me seems really enticing. And I know that it's deceivingly hard, you know, yeah. I, I know that there's way more to it than just like, oh, write the simple story. But there's something about just like writing a story and having the base structure there that you could extrapolate on and turn into a, a longer story. You know, like yeah. he could have taken some of these and rather than it being just a page extrapolated it out to to be like in in my you know in my perspective it could they, you could take one of these and extrapolate it out add more details add more twists sure. and turn it into like a full uh, screenplay or something and film it yeah. as like a as like a, a feature length film well i think that's actually a cool segue into the movie because this that is that is essentially the task that was before our filmmakers here um and they had to decide how were they going to make this movie? And I remember when I first heard it announced, I thought it was going to be an, like an anthology of of just like a bunch of different stories, but it's not. It's actually like a unified. It's like one unified story. And um, I don't want to get into spoilers just yet, but I'm, I was curious if you know anything about like the process behind 
making this movie, how Guillermo del Toro was attached to it, because I know that we see his name a lot with this movie, and, and that sort of stuff. So um, being a producer on a film is really interesting because it could mean so many different things. Being a producer could mean like you backed it financially, you were one of the people who... Uh, as the filmmaker was making decisions, the, the decisions had to go through, you know what I mean? Like basically being like the person that ideas are bounced off of. And sometimes you'll see like Guillermo del Toro presents scary stories to tell in the dark. Like, why didn't they just put the director's name there? Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, Guillermo del Toro was was fairly involved. Like he was he was highly involved in the decision making process with Andre Orvidal. Okay. And just just knowing uh, Guillermo del Toro's like love for for horror and his love for monsters specifically, yeah, you know you you can I have his his uh, book of monsters I believe it's called the it's like an amazing book it just shows like his collection of of uh, memorabilia and just like art that people have made throughout the years and and like the guy is like a curator of of horror he's uh, so important to that community and I think that him approaching these stories is so cool because like you say. It's important to a lot of people, you know, it's formed a lot of people's, you know, artistic background and going into this, I think the main thing that they, so I have a, I have a thing here that, that Guillermo del Toro and Andre Overdahl were talking about the things that they wanted to get done and Guillermo del Toro met okay. with CBS and he said, um, I wanted to take place in the sixties and I want the kids to die and not come back. Which is something that, that like I feel like in the books is important. You, you know, it's not yeah. necessarily like the kids die, like almost die or they're in peril or they're hurt, but they survive. It's like kids. The kids die in these yeah. in these stories. People die. So yeah. people die. Yeah. So in, real, in keeping real with <laughs> yeah, in in keeping with the source material, but still aiming it towards children. I think that 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 was like a that's a this is a large gap to cross. You know, yeah. like making it like kill kids and and kill people, yeah. yet still make it. Fair, like as PG thirteen would be the 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 guideline here, and that odd that odd um I don't know how to describe it like that task created sort of an odd film that I that was one of the things I liked most about it was that the tension between how dark it was yet it clearly being aimed at like a teenager to even young teenager audience mm -hmm. and how appropriate that felt for the source material like mm -hmm. like that was actually really appropriate for trying to adapt these books so my hat's off to him for for having that be a goal because i think that is something that this film achieves when watching this film i had to switch gears i had to readjust my expectations um fairly early on in the movie and we can talk more about it but um i do want to mention also something very important to the filmmakers was was the practical effects in this and the creature design and really nailing stephen gamble's illustrations like they mm -hmm. they wanted to represent everything that was on the page um which is again no small feat because it's a 2d image that they're just it's sketched out it's not within real 3d space like we said yeah. like things fade out and fade in into white and black um, so to, to bring it into a 3d space and make it look realistic. Um, and I do think that they did a really good job. There's like, you know, you can tell that it's practical with some CG augmentation. Yeah. Um, some of it's better than others, but I feel like for the most part, I think that they did really well with the, the creatures. Agree. Um, some of the standouts absolutely, uh, are that. And, and I think you can see, uh, Del Toro's touch, I think quite strongly there in the creature design, in my opinion, Definitely, yeah. because he, he yeah. knows what he's doing in that, in that regard. 
And there's even some with the story elements, something that, that kind of struck me that we can talk about in the spoiler section. But I, I do want to ask you just overall, do you want to give your, your, what was your reaction to it for non-spoiler people who are listening who haven't seen it yet? And then yeah. we can move into spoilers. How did you feel about the movie? So I kind of want to get your take first, um, okay. because I think my takes my take might be unusual. So I want to okay. hear what, what you what you thought of it first. So um, I mentioned the readjusting expectations um, overall after reading the story. And I think that this has something this is a major factor in it. If I, I having read the story, I appreciate a lot of the things that were going on in the film. But ultimately, I was uh, not the audience for this film. So I, I kind of didn't like it as much as I wanted to. But at the same time, I understood what it was and I, I appreciated it for that fact, if that makes sense. Okay. So ultimately, I, I think I was I was let down a little bit, is what I'm let trying to say. Let down a little. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had a weird reaction to this movie. Um, so I went and saw it uh, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, and I think there were two other people in the theater. So, <laughs> so that was an interesting and a pretty pretty large um, auditorium as well. I went into it like wondering how are they going to do this? Because I think if you sit down to adapt this in one story, you're going to have a pretty strong decision to make early on. And that is, is this a movie for the 30 year old fans of the original books? Or is this a movie for kids now when young, Mm -hmm. young teenagers now to get a similar experience of the books that the older fans had. Now, of course, you're going to have cross-pollination for both if you tried either one, but I think they tried to do the latter, right? Like, this is a movie designed for middle school kids, maybe some, maybe, like, teenagers, like, high school, and it sets out to do the same things that the book sets out to do. It has jokes, it has jump scares galore, and it has genuinely terrifying, creepy shit, too. And it tries to do all three. Um, the characters are archetypal and simple. There, there's not a lot of depth to them. They're fairly flat. Um, there's some minor arcs going on, but mostly it's just like it's you know it's the geeky girl, it's the the you know the goofy guy, it's the nerdy guy, it's the jock asshole. You know what I mean? Like we recognize they're almost archetype. They're almost like horror archetypes, almost like a cabin in the woods type characters. And so, so when I started figuring out, like, somewhere early on in the movie, I'm like, this is what they're doing. They're setting up these archetypal characters. They're simple. It reminded me of noticing in the stories that sometimes the characters don't even have names. It's just a man. A man was doing this. A woman did this. He met a woman who did this. Maybe she has a first name. You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot of those kind of stories. And that was kind of how it felt here. It was like, we're going to keep it simple. It's going to be identifiable character archetypes. And the monsters really shine in that sense, right? And it's and, and you got this you got the haunted house trope, right? There's a lot of tropes in this movie, for sure. Um but a clever story evolves. And so I had a good time with this movie. And even though I'm not a huge fan of jump scares, like I gave it a pass because that's what this that's what the books do. They tell you to grab your friend and yell ah. So of course there's mm-hmm. gonna be jump scares in this movie. And they're gonna be cheap sometimes. And and that and they provide a certain thrill. And then there are genuinely horrifying moments as well. And I really want to talk about those in more specifics, but that is definitely spoilery, so I'm not gonna go into any more details about it yet. <laughs> so uh you were talking about the 
it just this just dawned on me the to your point the the archetypal characters the tropes and the fact that this is geared towards children so it's a movie for children um this could be some of the first times that children these kids are experiencing these tropes some of the first times they're experiencing these characters it's designed to be your first real horror movie that's kind of what this movie is made to be right and it's a cool way to to kind of introduce those things and you know i think that that a horror fan will tell you like tropes tropes can be fun and tropes are fun in horror movies a genre Um, fan i think that's true for all genres yeah yeah there's a reason there's a reason why they're tropes and there's a reason why they work and you know sometimes you subvert those tropes sometimes you lean into them Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily like like something like Cabin in the Woods that you brought up was, although very archetypal, that's a subversion of that type of movie. You yeah. know what I mean? Ultimately, those characters, yeah. those characters, like the stuff that they go through, the way that things go down in that movie is a subversion of the genre. Yes. But I, I think l- having seen those things so many times, that's part of it. It just felt stale for, to, to somebody like me who's seen it a that's million fair. times. Yeah, that's and, fair. But like I said, I can appreciate it for what it is. I like the idea. I love the idea, actually, of of kids getting into horror. And I love the idea that, like, they didn't pull the punches of, of bringing the kids back, which I did. I was worried during the movie that, like, kids were going to come back. Um, yep. I was very worried about that. Ultimately, I think that what they were able to achieve is what what the book set out to like you said. It's for kids. And, and it's an introduction. It's And it doesn't um, shy away from the scary stuff. In the way yeah. that I think other like like the the example that comes to me a lot is um, the Jack Black film Ghost the Goosebumps like basically adaptation that came out. Oh, I didn't see very that. Very similar, very similar situation. Taking a story and building it around multiple Goosebumps stories and kind of having them all in the same movie together. Uh, yeah. So very very similar kind of situation. I think that if I wanted to see the version, the version of this that I would have liked to have seen as like a, you know, 26 year old man is Mm -hmm. uh, I want to see the anthology, right? I want to see none of it connected. I want to see each individual story. Give me like um, slightly different stylistic uh, things in each story, uh, you know, different types of shooting, different types of maybe maybe even have like multiple directors, that kind of thing. Like, and that's just that's a dream. But yeah. like and like that you can't pitch that to a studio as well as you can pitch something like this. That's for, you kids. know, what's interesting is I feel like you could still almost have that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's like that's like a yeah, like a, like a Netflix story where it's like love, death and robots, but for horror and it's called scary stories. And each one is a, you know, 10 or 15 minute short that right. embodies one of these iconic tales. I could totally see that. And, and yeah. I get I get kind of missing that are like feeling like you wish that that is what we got. I can see right. that. And I think that that's like the the version of this that, like you said, like the thirty year old people who yeah. grew up with the story would have liked to have seen. Like, show that's, us the Netflix adaptation that that like completely encapsulates everything that that like it means to them then and now. Yeah. Um, but overall, I, I I think we should move into spoilers because we're we're getting to that line where we think we need to. Start yeah, talking we've about talked stuff. about so oh, much, I, we're almost spoiling it. <laughs> but it sounds I so I talked a lot about it. I want to say one more good thing. Generally, is the effects are are. In terms of like creating monsters and like just the love of monsters, Guillermo del Toro kills it here. Yeah. Um, he understands what makes monsters creepy. He understands what makes them stick with people. And he also like a, a movie like Shape of Water shows you like it's not just about like fearing them. It's about like falling in love with these creatures as well, too. So and you can tell like there is that love there and that horror pedigree. So yeah. shout out to that aspect of this film. And that reminds me, uh, much like the books, 
if you're an adult and you're trying to judge, like they're going to be people who see this movie and go, I can't show this to my children. Right. You got people, you got people dying. You got children dying. You have real scary shit that scares me an adult. I can't show this to a, a middle schooler. No way. It's going to give them nightmares. Like, and, and you're going to have some of the same reactions that people had to these books. Right. Which, which ultimately like mission accomplished. That's what you want, right? For an adaptation yeah. of this. In terms of a recommendation, like who do you recommend this film for? And like, wh- what do you think that uh, people should take away from this general discussion here? Yeah, I think you you should introduce your children. <laughs> now, it's easy for me to say this. I'm not a parent, but uh, introduce your children to horror with this movie. If they're curious about it, if, if it's fun, let them go see it with their friends. I think they'll have a blast. I think they'll all be talking about it later. I think they'll have nightmares. I think it'll upset them, some of them. But it, that can be good. That can be part of growing up. And um, I would absolutely show my children this if I had any. So uh, in that sense, it's good for them. I think if you're an adult, you will enjoy it as well. I think maybe you'll be a little bored by some of the tropes if you're a dyed-in-the-wool horror fan. But um, if you can, if you can come at it the way I did, which is appreciating what they're trying to do here by having it be so accessible, um, you know, this isn't the smart, uh, you know, award-winning horror that we're getting great movies these days coming out. Like, this isn't that. This isn't going to be Hereditary or ba- The Babadook or something like that where it's got all these layers and symbolism. Like, you're not going to get that here, really. But... Um, in a metatextual sense, I think it was a great adaptation, in my opinion, um, or at least a good one, and, and one I had fun with. And I think, uh, especially if you're a fan of, the, of scary stories to tell in the dark, I think it's worth seeing. I would say it's definitely worth seeing, if, especially if like you have a young one that, that is interested in it. And that's the main thing, I think, to take away from the book and, and the movie. It's like, if there is interest there, if, if your kid is interested in it, and this is, again, from my perspective as like a younger person that doesn't have kids either, yeah. uh, I, I I think like in terms of like my opinion on the books, it's like if your kid is interested in it, let them read it. You know what I mean? Like like let them try it out. And if and then if it's something that that they engage with, great. And if it's something that they don't they don't like, they'll put it down. They're not going to keep reading it. And, you know, yeah. like it's not going to take them long to realize if it's for them or not. Yeah, you might have to deal with a couple nightmares. But the same thing with the movie. If there's interest there and your kid is interested in horror, I think that this is a this is a good movie to introduce somebody to. Um, in terms of like if you're if you're older and and like you said, somebody who's really, really steeped in, in horror, I, I don't know how much enjoyment you'll get out of it. But if you like the books, check out the movie, I would say. Yeah. And you could probably wait for it to come out uh, out of the theater. Probably be fine. Um, I did have a good experience in the theater, even though I was like one of the only ones there, um, just because something about seeing on the huge, like this big screen and being in like alone in a room was actually kind of scary in a way, which was cool, even midday. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, which you, did you did you have a full theater when you saw it? I had like 10 people in the theater with me, maybe. Okay. I'm really curious if anybody saw it with on like opening night in, in a in a theater full of teens. Because I bet you there was some yeah. screaming. I bet you there was some of that like audience participation that might have been really fun. That might have uh, yeah. honestly add to the experience. So I I do that just made me think of something. Just in terms of like people who go, like like teenagers who go to see horror movies. I think if you have a teenager like like you know fifteen sixteen, they might view this movie as too tame. They might be like really? except for like I, I think some of it. I think that they're looking for like something like. Uh, at least when I was when I was like 15, 16, like I was looking for horror movies that scared me in ways that I couldn't even comprehend. You know what I mean? Well, and like, that's why I said almost more middle school. Like this is almost even though the the, stu- the 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 kids are high schoolers. I think this is like if you're like twelve or thirteen, you this might be really 
really up your alley if you're into horror at all as far as far as like kids sneaking into horror movies and stuff like that like yeah. i don't see like first of all this is pg-13 so they probably wouldn't sneak in but but i don't think that this is necessarily what like an older teen is looking for like you say i think it's like honestly like ch- children to maybe it's a little scary for children but like yeah like middle schoolish. yeah you're gonna have trouble figuring it out because like i said there are parts of this movie that you know, almost seemed like too much. So I, I'm, let's get into spoilers, man. So I want to say we're going to go full spoilers now. Um, I think we've given all the recommendations we need to get to give. Um, and so we, we can talk about specifics. Uh, do you want to open with anything? I mean, so Harold, like like the transformation body horror scene of Harold and like the of I think his name was like Tommy. Tommy. Like yeah. with with the hay. Yeah, like choking, flowing choking out of his mouth, head. and yeah, and like coming out of his like oh, his fingers, he can't. He's like flicking it off and stuff. Uh, yeah, that, that was, was legitimately like like that was awesome. That was really cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, and the way that Harold kept like showing up and, and like he's trying to walk through the the corn maze and, or the corn field, I guess, and and like Harold keeps popping up. Uh, it just looked really good, and and that brings me to something else that I should have mentioned before. The each each person has like kind of a legendary horror performer creature performer within the suits really so like like people that you've probably seen but i can't tell you exactly who is in the herald suit but like um the person who is in the 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 uh the toe like mm-hmm. the missing toe is uh it's the same performer from like mama he was in um he's been in like a lot of stuff he is like he is like this uh body uh I don't know if you call it a disorder. He's got like a body. Um, it's like a he's like very, very skinny. OK, like he's very skinny and lanky. Anyway, yeah, yeah. he he uh, is known for those performances. And then uh, the jangly man, I think, is what they call him in this film. Yeah. The he the all the twists and turns of the neck and the in the back and the contorting. That's a performer who's actually like I think they found him. I, I watched a video and they said that like he, he had been a performer on uh America's Got Talent or something like that, like a contortionist. Oh, that's crazy. I actually might know who that is then. I've seen yeah, clips so, of it. So I think that he, they brought him in to, to really all the, like all the twisting of the back and like walking and all that stuff, the way he was yeah. walking on all fours, like the actual performer did that, which I mean, that's, that's amazing. Like those that's performers awesome. deserve all the credit for, for these, bringing these creatures to life. The red room sequence to me is the thing that I feel like I'm always going to remember about this movie. I actually really? thought it was brilliant. Yeah. The the terror of that kid running from the slow moving, creepily smiling, beady eyed creature that is just slowly shuffling down the hall at him. And every which way he turns, there she is, yet she's a little bit closer. And so much so that like it becomes truly like mind like boggling when, when she's right there, she's right there, he's turning around, turning around, and then he gets literally uh absorbed by her Mm -hmm. and he's just gone and he was one i was like convinced was not gonna like really die right and he really dies and is gone and uh that sequence is terrifying to me i don't know like that that was really something the i i did really like that sequence um the the other thing that i like is the dread that they built up like how many times they kept talking about the red room and the the clever use of being like the red room don't go near that red room like the research whatever it was in develop the research education development building or whatever he's like i can't Mm -hmm. go to the red room it might not actually be a red room like i can't go anywhere it wasn't any of that stuff yeah so yeah it wasn't and then and then the idea of the emergency likes clicking over and having it be like that very very red lighting um I think all that really worked and I think it looked great on camera. Uh, I was, I was 
definitely expecting him to at least try to like swim move the creature because there's like a lot of hallway but in on either side so i was like is he gonna try to like dodge around it or what i, I think he was just um, fucking in shock though because you would be like he like it's it, what's what's happening is impossible right so i could see just being so afraid you you don't you can't do anything in that moment you know and like even because he he feels like he can't escape and like it does feel inescapable because if you swim around her there she is again like you know what i mean because like reality's broken in this moment yeah and i thought that, that was what was going to happen he was going to like edge around her and then like keep running down the hallway and then she'd appear in front of him again yeah um, i just thought that was that that he didn't him not doing it i was like i would have at least tried that but uh <laughs> i liked it Maybe. i thought it was cool um yeah. let's talk about the other creatures uh so yeah. we talked about. I think we've actually talked about all of them. The toe, yeah. the missing. Well, toe. there's the red spot moment. Um, oh, that right. that was really was gross. Um, all the spiders, and then uh, oh, the big the big toe um sequence, which which funny I didn't mention it early, but like I always the big toe always reminds me now of Rawhead Rex, another project we covered a long time ago, because mm-hmm. of the idea of a farmer finding something in his in his field was like how right. Rawhead Rex the story begins, and yeah. so I always think of Rawhead. You know what I mean, and so that's always yeah. just like a just a fun like podcast thing, I guess for uh, for our podcast that I think <laughs> of. Funny. But yeah, the idea uh, that was that was like a like I knew a monstrous jump scare was coming, and they did. Um, but like tr- genuinely, like I had trouble watching him come out from under that bed and like creep up and like peek over the lip, mm-hmm. knowing that a jump scare was coming, and like that is almost in like nowadays that's considered like cheap. And rightfully so, because it is. Yet it still does have like a thrill to it, you know. And mm. horror can be that way. And so I like, right. and and like we said, that's part of something from the books. And so in that sense, I forgave it in a way that I probably wouldn't forgive a lot of other movies. Like in a lot of other movies, I'd be like, oh, that was so fucking cheap. But I kind of forgave it. I don't really like this narrative of people who are like very quick to just say like, I like horror movies, but I don't like jump scare horror movies. Yeah. Um, because I think there's something not only snobby about that. I think there's something like kind of incorrect about that because you mentioned, I don't want to spoil anything from this movie, but you mentioned hereditary, which actually is a movie that has jump scares in it. Okay. But clever jump scares at that, but they are, there are jump scares. So it's not about, I I think the problem becomes movies that are only jump scares. There's no atmosphere. It's just jump scares. Every time you, every time the the characters go around a corner, there's going to be a jump scare or like something like that, like the overuse of jump scares. But I, I, I don't like the idea of people saying like, I don't like horror that, that is this. I don't like horror that is that because like there's, there's a, there's always outliers. Well, in the defense of that argument, though, is that sometimes there's an over-reliance on it. You'll see. And it's always comboed with a loud sound after a moment of silence and a piercing loud sound. Because, like, they know that because of our biology, we're going to have a reaction if you hit us with a surprising sound and fast-moving image. Um, and so it's kind of cheap to, like, repeatedly lean on that and go like this is how i'm going to scare the audience because you're not doing the work of building something creepy now that's not to say you can't do it in a movie like you're saying like you can have that in a in a movie that does a lot of other things right but there are definitely uh there's been a lot of movies that come out that like that's the one note they got and they just play it again and again throughout yeah it's definitely used as a crutch in horror death there's no doubt about that i guess my argument would be like if there's an, an incredible movie like a movie that just like narratively 
tells this tells a terrifying story has amazing atmosphere does everything else right and has jump scares i guarantee that you're not going to say i don't like that movie because of the jump scares you know what right. i mean yeah so i guess that's where i land on it it's a tool in the toolbox and 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 the problem is it's been used way too much sometimes but it's like it's not yeah i agree it's not like saying you can't use that tool because i think it is a legitimate one and that and and that brings me back to like this movie isn't only jump scares it has other scares like that uh, hallway scene is not a jump scare scene. It is a right. building inescapable horror scene, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no loud sound. Like she, he gets like slowly hugged to death, essentially, and absorbed. Um, right. So that is a scene that doesn't end in a jump scare. And and so, um, yeah. And the jangly man stuff. A lot of that was was a different kind of scare too. It was more. Um, it almost reminded me more of that like hide and seek. Like you're running and hiding from the monster, and it's looking for you. It's like a more classic monster movie thing right i like the me tai doty walker stuff though we should we should yeah. mention that because you said what did you think of hearing that in the in the film i thought we were getting the full me tai doty walker uh like i thought we were just gonna get the head down the chimney and the dog back and forth and that that was how we were gonna get it but then they, yeah. they continued it on i think i would have preferred it you know more close to the actual like normal thing but uh i didn't realize what they were trying to do with the jangly man until after i left the theater Okay. Did you what's that? Did you understand that like he this character I I Ramon, right? His name is Ramon, I think. The like draft yeah, yeah, dodger. Yeah, the the draft yes. dodger character, <laughs> which I feel bad calling him that is, but that's one of his identifiable traits, yeah. He was the main guy, the main like protagonist dude. Right. So he um he mentions like in the cell like he's a, that's when he tells her like I dodge the draft. Um, it's because my brother, like they send him back in pieces and they didn't realize like, that's why he was scared of the, that's why he was coming for him because he was in pieces. Yeah. And it's like that sort of fear of like what happened to his brother and like something coming after him and like, um, which, which also I wanted to ask you, like, what's your, what are your thoughts on this? Like setting it in the sixties Vietnam stuff, even though it was a book that was from the eighties. Yeah. It's interesting. And it felt like they were definitely leaning on the like Richard Nixon thing. Um, yeah. There was like a political thing kind of being said there. Is that like parallels to kind of like a, a certain president we have right now? Yeah, I think so. And uh, and 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 I think that also shows like the, you know, you can live in a time where things are not just and things the right, the good person, the right thing doesn't happen. And um, good people don't always win and like things like that. Right. Like you can definitely mm-hmm. see a lot of that. Um, I do like to I want to revisit that because what you're talking about with the jangly man, because I think there's a little bit of that for all of them. Now that you mention it, definitely with the red spot, right? Because that is sort of the sister who's been so vain throughout. And she's sort of obsessed with her physical appearance. And then she's the one who gets this grotesque growth on her face that bursts into spiders. And that is that sort of morality. Like, don't be so obsessed with your looks kind of lesson, I guess. And then you get Harold, who is definitely a, a, a parable about bullying, because we see Tommy repeatedly, like we first time we meet Harold, he's beating him up and throwing shit at him, calling him names. And we see that throughout. And then the bully kind of gets what's coming to him and gets turned into a scarecrow himself. I don't know. And like he's an empty man full of straw. I'm, I'm wondering if that means something. So bringing that back, what what what's your take on the Red Room sequence then and how that creature relates to um, sort of our goofy guy? Because that's the one that I'm having trouble drawing the direct comparisons although i feel like they must be there to be made 
Yeah, it's a good I know it's question. a naked woman, so maybe it's that. Because remember, he has the pen that's like a naked woman deal. Yeah, and, yeah, I, and think that's, so. I think you're right and, there. Yeah, and she, and that's a naked woman. Um, so maybe that's part of it, right? Right, and know. like the like the I don't know. I feel like there's probably something being said about like the depiction of each of the women, like the yeah. way that like it's like a scantily clad woman versus like a dead like. Um, seemingly dead I don't, i'm not sure but like and Creature. also like bloating <laughs> body yeah you know what i mean uh yeah i think there, i think that you're right that there's something about that pen there maybe the way he's been treating women in his life or yeah. something and like a yeah, lesson to be so. learned there yeah there's something about that and then and then of course the main progenitor of that is the the scary stories something bellows is it sarah bellows i think it might have been. i think it's sarah bellows yeah and so she was locked in this prison and it's interesting because I, I don't think that's an actual story from the scary stories but and she would tell these stories to people and then she got accused of poisoning, but it was actually her family who was like poisoning mm-hmm. everyone with mercury and had been abusing her and locking her up. And there was definitely parallels with her and our main protagonist, right? And who also told scary stories and also felt like an outcast and like she'd been abandoned by her family. So in that sense, like I like how each of the things sort of links up and it doesn't in a way that isn't too heady and it isn't like an inaccessible thing, right? Like it's something that like, is sort of surface level but it's there still and like clearly her the the story that ultimately happens to her is kind of like a her fear of writing and like like wanting to write stories but being afraid of it and then having to ultimately write a story in order to save the day and like fully tell a story yeah power the power the stories the power the stories hold for her um, and the power that they held for Sarah Bellows. And then, yeah, the idea of coming to grips with your family leaving you and having it, having you not blame yourself. And like Sarah Bellows is this monster who is killing people because she, she embodies it, but then she has to tell her, you're not a monster. The monster is your family and they, and what they made you. And in a sense, she's telling herself that like, she's not the reason her mother left right that her yeah. mother left on her own and that she should be mad at her mother and not mad at herself yeah maybe you know i think there's a, there's a nice kind of lesson there um we also get uh we also get a breaking bad alum um <laughs> uh hank is, is in this movie <laughs> um, i don't know the actor's actual name i do but I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it um and and that does remind me that we get a final scene where they're where they're driving and it's it's uh it's him it's his daughter, and it's the uh, the sister who had the red spot, who we were told was like institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And she's got this horrific scar on her face, um, so she's been changed, right? And that's not ju- it's not just gone. She has this huge scar, and um, they're setting out to what was it like to to learn more about the Bellows? What was it? What was it track down the stories? What was it exactly? I, I, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Sequel sequel bait is what I call sequel it. Sequel <laughs> bait, exactly. And I thought it was interesting because most of the stories that we got, not all of them, but most of them seem to come from book three. Did you notice that? A lot of our big biggest stories came from the third volume. Um, yeah. Harold's from the third volume. The Red Room creature is from the third volume. I think the Red Smot might even be from the third volume. I think you're um, right, yeah. Only the Big Toe, which is the opening story of book one, is definitely not... Um, and, and maybe a little bit others, but like most of it came from volume three. So I feel like there's lots of stories still left to be reimagined. Um, I could see them making a sequel to this movie. You could easily make a scary stories two, scary stories three. I mean, hell, the books did it. Um, I don't know. Interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, Guillermo del Toro talked about how 
he you know he fought for the children dying and i think that sequel baiting is the way that he was able to let that happen because it's very clear that there's they're like we're on our way and we're not going to forget our friends we're going to go back and we're going to save them oh you thought they were going to save the friends i thought they were just going to prevent more from happening I think they were like, yeah, we won't forget them. And we I think that's kind of what they were saying is like, we won't we will we we're going to save them. And I assume that in a sequel, they, they would have to save their friends or something. But I don't okay. know. Um, yeah, that would be kind of a bummer. I, I yeah, you're right. Maybe maybe they will go down that route because I, I like the idea of the friends are permanently dead. <laughs> right. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that that's the story to tell. And maybe maybe they'll leave them dead. Who knows? You know, maybe that'll be what they find out. Or maybe like or if you try and if you try and save them. What if they're, you know what I mean? What you bring back is actually a horrific abomination of version of the friend, right? And so there's a lot of stories like that, like bringing people back from the dead is not always good. And there's a lot of yeah. folklore around that sort of thing. So you could you could play with it in that sense and have some of the same actors return, but maybe like the characters don't actually come back just like all fine now. Right. So what's your what's your excitement level for a sequel? Uh, I'm intrigued, you know, and, 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 and once again, like, I don't know if it's, this isn't like high art. It's not something that like, I feel like it's a must see in the theater. Um, but I, I would watch it. I would absolutely watch this sequel to this movie, especially if it was like same quality level, right? Like a same attention to monster detail. And there mm-hmm. was new monsters from inspired by the Stephen Gamble art. Like I'm enough of a fan of this stuff, this material that I would be into it, especially if they don't just go the expected route and they do something interesting and unique with it. Um, I could definitely be into it, man. It seems like you're maybe not there. So, and that's fair. I don't know. I'm, I'm of two minds. So the one part of me, let me just separate myself. Right. So, yeah. so pretend okay. I didn't read these stories before going to see this movie. I'm not going to watch the sequel personally. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but like you said, I think that like there's enough attachment to the stories and wanting to see like what an adaptation of this. What about 13 year old James Bailey? I think, yeah, I think 13 year old James Bailey would be into it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So that says something, too. Right. And and, and like, there you go. Like that's and I think that's cool. There's definitely a like a reason to have specific art for specific people. And yeah. so this this being geared towards kids, I'm all for it. But personally, if I had I, I will I would watch a sequel um, having read the material and like being excited for like what other adaptations of the creatures could look like and yeah and that kind of stuff. Like I said, I, I would have liked to have seen a more an- anthology version of this, but like I would I would see a sequel. Uh, but I will say that like if you have no attachment to the to any of the creatures or any of the stories, I think that your mileage may vary for this stuff. And I think that's fair, and I think that's true. Um, I also think this was an ambitious idea for how to adapt material like this mm-hmm. and um it was very like um meta metatextual in a way it was very um like on the nose it was very we are adapting these stories and and it's it's very obvious it's there's so many nods to the books and and it's not even nods it's direct right like we have a not we have a book in the in the movie that is writing the stories mm-hmm. um oh which which I didn't mention uh, I, I, I at the very beginning, I think I talked about how like I could see some of the story elements that that Guillermo del Toro may have influenced the do you remember in Pan's Labyrinth when like the she finds the book and it's like it's like revealing itself to her like the maps and stuff. Oh, yeah, I it, it kind of yeah, it kind of like really that when the when the text was being written on the page, it really I mean, not only did it make me think of like Tom Riddle and Harry Potter with the with the diary, but also it made me think of like <laughs> Pan's Labyrinth with the with the, like the maps like developing on the page for yeah, for the character. 
Yeah. So I want to I want to end I think um, talking a little bit about because we we do a podcast on adaptations and I want to think more about this style of an adaptation which I think has been kind of is kind of a unique one and like w- what do we think of it? Um, so I think I think that might be a good place to leave it. So I'm definitely curious to know what you think. Like was it was it too on the nose? Was it too obvious like we are doing an adaptation nudge nudge or or was it something else? What was it for you? Would you want to see more projects done in this way or is it feel like this is uniquely suited to this material or or what have you? I can't I can't say that I don't like adaptations that are that are like this because like comic books that I love growing up are being adapted with a wink and a nod and like a nudge nudge as yeah. as they're being put on screen. That's so like point. there's a lot of that going on in the superhero movies and things like that. It's not that I don't like adaptations like this. I just think that depend it it's going to take a specific type of material. You know like yeah. it's it's not like like a movie like Annihilation isn't going to isn't going to be a great adaptation if it's like remember the book nudge nudge and this is <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what i mean like it's just different types of stuff so if like i think that this is very fitting of the material i think that they did go a little i think it was a little more kiddie than than even the books just because they were trying to tie it together and make maybe make it a little more broad for a, for a, for a movie for kids yeah but i don't know man those books are remember some of those stories <laughs> they're pretty kiddie <laughs> well so, but some of them are like like yeah I don't know. There's definitely some kitty stuff in there, but I I think like the imagery is is much yes. more than we see in the in the uh, movies. Absolutely. I mean, well, I mean they they did their best on some of that Stephen Gamble stuff, you know, to 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 emphasize it. But you're right. It wasn't like a omnipresent. It wasn't like the whole movie was animated in a way that was yeah all evocative of the Stephen Gamble. Because in the Stephen Gamble stuff, like the humans are scary. You know, they're like, yeah. they're like, they're like outlines like of people distorted. with like, yeah. yeah, like their bodies are weirdly shaped and like everything about it's upsetting. If you were to try and watch a cartoon animated in that way, it would be a tough watch and it would oh, definitely like, be disturbing as hell. I would mess that up. I would love that. Like <laughs> fully animated, like the, this style, like I would, I would watch the hell out of that. Yeah, man. And I agree. So like the idea of like a, an anthology series animated in that style or something that goes through each of these stories, like I'm into that too. So I, I and I think that I think the world's big enough for both. Um, I guess I just enjoy the idea of like having some fun with this thing and trying something. And like maybe it doesn't fully work in every way, but it, they tried something different. You know, mm-hmm. they tried something that like I don't think I would have ever predicted that they would adapt this material this way. Yeah, um, I think I think what I'll walk away with is I, I'm happy that this exists for like we say like like in terms of introducing a new audience to horror and like delivering the tropes and and having it done in an artistic way and yeah. like getting actually like well-developed interesting creatures that aren't just like they are people in suits but they don't look like you know like what we think of as like a man in a suit as the is the bad guy like uh yeah. of, of the horror movie it, it like there there was a lot of like painstaking artistic um effort that went into these and i think it's cool that 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 exists for for people of a certain age so so i'm all for it ultimately like i think that it's great but like like i said mileage may vary depending on on where you're at and that's fair man all right so i think that's probably good for scary stories um i think we'll reveal our next week's project at the very end of the episode so before we get to that we just wanted to thank one of our newest patrons todd m uh, we got a few new patrons for the, for the, for the special offer and we're thankful to all of them. Um, definitely look forward to some more, uh, commissioned projects coming up. 
Yeah, thank you to Todd and and everyone who is a patron because you you now have token to put towards whatever project you like to. And if you're not a patron but you would like to become one, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film for more information on that. Absolutely. And if you wanted to support the podcast in another way that doesn't cost you anything, and that's leaving a rating and review online, whatever form you can, especially iTunes is good. And uh, barring that, telling a friend in real life is always a great way to, to share the love and get the word out. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And join the Council of Inklings. It's uh, where we post polls and, and uh, interesting adaptation information that we find. Uh, it's a great way to connect with the community. Yeah, and people uh, talk about our episodes, talk about different adaptations, all sorts of things on there. Definitely join up. Uh, and yeah, we wanted to thank uh, Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. And thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. And we wanted to tell you about our next project. It's going to be a commission project. Uh, enough tokens were put towards it. It's going to be Enemy Mine. Yeah, so this is a movie I've never seen, a story I've never read. It's, uh, I believe, a novella. Uh, came out in the 80s, I want to say. And the, the, the film definitely came out in the 80s. Uh, so we're doing kind of a throwback project here. But that was, it was commissioned by uh, Stephen E., who has been someone who's commissioned a lot of stuff going on uh, leading up to now. He got his extra bonus token with everybody else and was able to put two right towards this project and unlock it right away. So we're getting to it first. First come, first serve kind of deal. Yeah, and if you have those tokens and you haven't picked your project yet, be sure to reach out and let us know. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, this has been a great project for me. I really enjoy talking about scary stories. Like I said, very important for me. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, So thank you for listening, and we hope you come back next week for Enemy Mine. Uh, Until next time. Thanks for listening.